In today's Vet Girl podcast, we have the honor of interviewing David Liss, who's a double board certified veterinary technician specialist, educator, and speaker. He's also the program director of veterinary technology in Los Angeles. And today, he's going to be speaking about veterinary nursing. So David, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today for Vet Girl podcast. Excellent. Thanks, Dr. Lee. Really appreciate it. The topic today is talking about veterinary nursing and really creating effective nursing plans. I think that I'm a big fan of veterinary technicians getting in there and really taking ownership of the patient in terms of setting the times that vitals are taken and assessments on their patients and monitoring the blood work and the catheters and all of that stuff. So, you know, if you kind of imagine that it's a really early morning and you've got your Starbucks and you're walking into a treatment room and let's say you're in a large facility that has lots of hospitalized patients and you see a really, really sick pet maybe they have a nasal oxygen cannula or they have multiple catheters or they have several IV lines. And, you know, you say to yourself, this is the kind of pet that I want to nurse. I'm an emergency critical care technician or I'm a highly trained veterinary technician. And so a lot of the times I think the veterinarians are excellent at coming up with medications the pet needs and blood work they need in ordering x-rays, but that there's a bit of a lack on the nursing side as to what to do. And so this talk, this quick sound check here is just to kind of go over what is this idea of the nursing process? How could we make effective nursing plans for our patients and then hopefully get technicians to really think about these kinds of things? And so they can, for example, have a painful patient and they come to the veterinarian and say, hey, look, they're tachycardic, they're painful, I've done X, Y, and Z, I think we need this medication and the vet can make a much more informed decision. So, you know, what does it take to be an emergency critical care technician? Well, we know it's hard work, right? It's such hard work to be a vet tech. You really have to think on your feet. You really have to be prepared. And so I think that some of those hallmarks of emergency and critical care techs, and by the way, this is not limited to any practice. Any technician that sees emergencies is an emergency and critical care technician. They really got to think critically, really never stop learning, really be proactive in patient care, and then have some idea of uh, advanced monitoring therapeutic techniques as well. Teamwork also, of course, is, is very, very important. So this framework that I'm going to use, and I'm going to break it down a little bit and talk about some acronyms and stuff, but uh, the framework is called the nursing process. And in human medicine, registered nurses actually can create a nursing diagnosis and the framework for people to help kind of think globally about a patient and apply these large conceptual things. And so what I find really interesting is in veterinary medicine, you know, technicians across the board in all states are not allowed to diagnose, but we could find and create nursing assessments. And that's really where I'm taking this is what are some of these issues that we could consider nursing failures, like a patient laying in urine, and then we could assess that and apply a nursing plan to fix it. So nursing of these critically ill patients is really, you have to be detail-oriented, you have to be knowledgeable, skilled, really diligent, and then very compassionate. The four parts of the nursing process start with the assessment. And so that includes all of this objective data that we're going to take in and apply. So for example, the patient's mental status, their heart rate, their problem list, all of those things that the technician could look at a chart, look at the cage card, and go in and do a really thorough physical exam and accumulate. And then after all of that information is taken in, the technician needs to say, okay, what are the problems with this patient? And we have to think a little bit broadly. We're not so much talking about medical problems such as hepatitis or septic shock, but potentially a nursing problem could be hypotension, more of a symptom. A nursing problem could be multiple catheters, one of which has phlebitis. A nursing problem could be lateral recumbency. A nursing problem could be anorexia. And so we would list those. Ideally, in human medicine, they go in and they type it all in the computer. I think in our 
our world, we would just have to keep some sort of a mental track and potentially chart some information down on the chart. And so then what we're going to do is we're going to create this list of all these problems. Then in that same step, which is the planning stage, we're then going to say, okay, what can I do that will fix these things. So for example, anorexia and the patient is not NPO. Well, we could get some food, we could warm it up, we could syringe feed, we could tube feed it, you know, there's all these different options. The next step after we've come up with our plan is to then implement the plan or do the plan. So we might write down on a treatment sheet, okay, you know, this patient is febrile. I'm going to take a temperature every hour until the patient's temperature is within normal range. Obviously, barring, you know, the patient sleeping or some sort of anal surgery or all those kinds of things, we would then implement that plan. And then there's one final step, which I think is incredibly crucial, and it's the evaluation step. And the evaluation step is really about, okay, we did our plan but did it work? So the patient that was painful, the veterinarian, uh, the patient was on buprenorphine. The veterinarian said, well, let's use hydromorphone. Let's use a little bit of a stronger drug. We give the drug and we can't just expect it to work. We can't just assume it'll work. We have to go back and say, okay, I'm going to give the hydromorphone at noon. 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later, I'm going to assess the patient for a change in their pain score. So we do that. We evaluate it. And if it worked, check, we could kind of remove that nursing problems from the list. If it doesn't work, guess what? We go right back to that assessment. So it's a circular process that really helps these patients. We continue to stay up on all of these problems they face. So again, that assessment is all the objective data. So it's kind of the subjective and objective parts potentially of the SOAP, which veterinary technicians are allowed to do. We don't move on to the diagnosis or the plan, but we can certainly do a physical exam and report those findings. So you've got the signalment, you've got the history, you've got the physical exam, you've got the doctor's problem list, medications there on, temperament issues, pain assessments, recumbency, lab work, all of those things would go into the assessment. Planning, again, is going to be where we identify those problems and a potential solution. Implementation is going to be performing that plan, and then we'll have that evaluation, which will be how that plan worked. And again, remember, we've got to swing back to assessment if we don't solve the problem. So a quick example might be that you walk up to a patient and you're going to be doing some vital signs and you see that they're pretty tachycardic. You know, you check the heart rate and go, wow, this patient's got a very fast heart rate. Let's say a 16-year-old male neutered DSH that's in the hospital and he's yellow and you check a heart rate and it's 240 and you go, whoa, that's pretty fast. So what would be some things? Well, I'll tell you, Justine, some of the things that would run through my head would be checking a blood pressure, checking an ECG, and oh, the cat actually had an exploratory laparotomy. I'm going to check the incision site. So, you know, on the medical side, I'm checking for fluid loss, hypotension, an arrhythmia, but also you got to throw pain in there. So as a nurse, as a veterinary technician, and at least in the clinics that I've worked at, I would be allowed to do these non-invasive diagnostics. We have hospitalization charges for that very reason. So there's a lot of ability to do a lot of monitoring. I would certainly never, without a veterinarian's order written to draw blood or any of those things by myself, but doing a non-invasive vital sign and potentially the diagnostic like an ECG, I'd check it out. And I look at it and I go, okay, the blood pressure is 120 systolic. So, okay, maybe there's not a lot of issue with the pressures there. ECG shows sinus tachycardia, so it might not be some sort of malignant arrhythmia. And then I gently push on the incision and there's rebound and guarding and the cat hisses and fit to me. And I go, well, okay, the cat got butorphanol as a preoperative medication. Maybe we need to reassess the pain score. I would go to you. I would tell you all of this information. You go, yep, I concur. I, let's add a buprenorphine dose or a hydromorphone dose. And then what I would do after I've done that is I would say, okay, I'm going to recheck that heart rate in 30 minutes and I'm going to repalpate the incision in an hour. I go back, cat is calm, heart rate is down to 170 and the incision palpates is non-painful, something like that. So that's kind of the idea of where I'm going. So now the question is, 
how do we get all of these nursing assessment information? Well, there's two big, really dense, overall eagle's eye view approaches to these critical patients. And one of them is the rule of 20, Dr. Rebecca Kirby's landmark paper. And people can find it online. There's some pretty easy ways to, to get a hold of it. And that's wonderful. And I think it's a great read. And I think every emergency critical care tech should check out that. What I think that Dr. Kirby did was come up with veterinarian 20 areas. And, you know, there's certainly things on there that we wouldn't necessarily pay attention much to in terms of antibiotic choices or things like that. You know, we definitely need to know what our patient's PCV is. We need to understand that it has to do with oxygen delivery, but we need to understand what their heart rate is. But what I did was I took that information and I distilled it down to about 12 different areas that veterinary technicians should pay attention to in every patient. And the acronym is calibration. So I'll read it out. It's kind of hard to obviously see it in a podcast, but I think those that are listening to this can pause and rewind and, and go through it. And I'll speak it as slowly as I can, and then I'll go through the different areas. So I'm not going to walk through each of these. You know, we don't have enough time, but this is the teaser. C stands for catheters, fluids, and fluid balance. So in the C, we're thinking about what kinds of catheters does the patient have, what kinds of fluids is the patient on, and what kind of fluid balance is that patient showing? So are they a little overhydrated, they a little wet, what's going on there, or are they a little dry, they're a little underhydrated, or might they just be in that sweet spot? A is for anatomy and systems. So I think that, for example, the renal, the cardiovascular, the respiratory, and the neurologic system are four that can change on a very rapid basis. So patients, normotensive, normotensive, boom, hypotensive. Patient is eupnic, eupnic, tachypnic right away. Patient is peeing, peeing, all of a sudden there's a sudden drop off in urine output. Or the patient is BAR, BAR, boom, they're obtended. So those are the four that I think need to be constantly in an ongoing assessment uh, that that techs are doing. Labs, technicians need to know what the blood work is saying, what's going on, when are we drawing the blood work, what is all of that information telling us. Also being cognizant of how much blood we're drawing each day. So those things are super, super important. Injections, medications, drugs, all of that stuff's so important, right? The five rights of medication, what we're giving, how much we're giving, how often we're giving, are they interacting with each other, all of those things. Bedding husbandry recumbency. So every patient really deserves that quality of life, right? So they need to be on lots of blankets. They shouldn't be urinating on themselves. If they're recumbent, we need to rotate them. Records and notes, so important for technicians to chart down what they're seeing and what they're doing, making sure that treatments are initialed and signed off and their observations are going notice. Analgesia, pain scores, very, very important. Tender loving care, you know, we can't let that go. We got to make sure that patients get that. So if they don't want it, they don't want it. But if they enjoy being rubbed or scratched or whatever, it's so important to release those endorphins. Infection control, huge, making sure that we're washing our hands, cleaning our equipment, cleaning our cages. Observations and trends. So it's so important for us to have on a visual sheet where the numbers are going, heart rate, respiratory rate, blood pressure, up and down, all of those things. And lastly, nutrition. So these are the areas that I think technicians really can pay really close attention to and monitor on these guys. So really, how do we keep this all together? We use the nursing process. When we find issues like tachycardia, like anorexia, we go through and have to say, okay, what would we do about that? So again, that nursing process is assessment, looking at planning, implementation, and evaluation. Those are the four steps of the process. So for example, just want to go over real quick these ideas of nursing quote-unquote diagnoses. Again, I think we should in veterinary medicine call these nursing assessments. And so for example, a patient that was dehydrated, I wouldn't say they're dehydrated, that's approaching a diagnosis. I would say they have a fluid volume deficit. That is objective. I could measure that. I could use certain things to back that up. Patients that might, for example, a block cat, 
they wouldn't have hyperkalemia. We could probably say that, but we would say they have a risk for electrolyte imbalance. Urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, these are all nursing assessments. Hypothermia, impaired gas exchange. This is the way that the nursing process thinks about is more about quality of life issues versus a medical diagnosis. So, you know, veterinary technicians, think about making these types of plans for your patients called care plans. So let's say it's a patient that has heart failure, they're coughing, they're cyanotic, we've been treating them with stuff. Well, what would be some things we could do? Well, we definitely want to look at their mucous membranes. Why? We want to look at their blood pressure, their pulse, and their respiration. So maybe you would put down vital signs every X number of hours. Listen to their breath sounds, checking for edema, weighing them regularly, looking at ins and outs. All of those kinds of things would be very important, and you would want to come up with the time frame to do those. It sometimes peeves me a little bit when veterinarians are saying, well, you need to tempt them every four hours, and vet techs say, well, gosh, you know, if we're 24-hour hospital, that means we have to tempt them at two in the morning when they're sleeping. The technician should have the ethics and the morality to say, you know what, I'm going to wait eight hours to tempt them again because it's been normal. I don't need to worry about it. I'm obviously going to still look in their cage and keep an eye, but I am allowed, I have the autonomy to set these things up couple of quick notes on just some sample kind of areas, catheters, nutrition, analgesia, recumbency. These come up in a lot of patients, right? So we talked about catheters, checking them, flushing them, watching for phlebitis, fluid balance. Are they a positive? Are they wet? Are they a negative fluid balance? Nutrition. Are they anorexic? Do they need a body weight, a body condition score? Can they have food? And if they have food, if they can, it really should be that veterinary technician's purview as to whether we do oral feeding or checking with the doctor about a tube feed and what we can feed. All that stuff is just absolutely huge. Analgesia, making sure that we're using these really robust and also evidence-based pain scores. So the ones out of Colorado State are great, the zero to four scale. There's pictures of what the patient would look like. There's psychological and behavioral assessments, responses to palpation, and body tension. All of those are really important. So there's a dog one and a cat one. That text, we really got to be up on our pain management, making sure we know that cats do things very different than dogs and how to assess those. Bedding, husbandry, and recumbency, huge. Bedding and padding, body position, watching for excrement, mobility, passive range of motion, sleep pattern, noise, eye care, and oral care. All of these things are really, really important. So what I'm going to leave you guys with here, because it's such a short little note, is I'm going to leave you a case. And I want you guys to think about this after the podcast shoot back in the comments, email Dr. Lee, email that girl, whoever it might be, Facebook me, whatever it might be. I want to hear your thoughts on this patient. So we have an 11-year-old male neutered Rottweiler. And this Rottweiler had a hemoabdomen three months ago. He was diagnosed at that point and had a spleen out for hemangiosarcoma. We decided to do, the owners decided to do chemotherapy. And he comes back in three months later, represented lateral recumbent septic peritonitis. You know, he perfed something. Who knows why? This dog's very sick. So you walk up and you imagine a lateral recumbent Roddy with a heart rate of 170 and weak and thready pulses. His blood pressure is 83 over 32. His respiration rate is 12. He's pale. He's ictric. He's got a one-second CRT, and his temperature is 99.3. So if you imagine all of those things and think about now you've got the world's your oyster, right? What kind of treatments is the vet going to offer? What are things you're going to worry about? Let's say the patient's already been admitted and they have a catheter and fluids. What would you do to take really good care of that patient? So what would be your assessment? What would be your interventions? What would be your evaluation of this patient? And what would you then say how often we need to do things, whether they've been fixed, what would be your plan? And then we go back to that assessment again if we haven't fixed it. So nursing checklists are really important. And we're going to make sure my contact info is out there. I have a nice little checklist that I can send you. 
and it's not certainly it's got everything in there that I can think of, but there's certainly room to add more. And it's just a great way for you just to keep everything together. Is the patient urinating? Are they eating enough? Are they getting enough walks? All of that kind of stuff. So I'll tell you, I know that was a whirlwind, but uh, again, this is meant to just be a real quick introduction to the nursing process. And then I'll just uh, give it back to you, Dr. Lee. That was amazing, David. Thank you so much. A ton of awesome content. Although I've never met anyone who speaks faster than me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That was fantastic. Seriously. <laughs> a couple of great questions and great points that you brought up. I actually often battle people in the clinic that I work at, and I love the nursing staff there. They're my right arm. I really trust them when they're examining animals. But I actually feel like sometimes, especially in the emergent or the critically ill patient, sometimes we're over TPRing some of these patients or over diagnosing them in certain ways. What are your thoughts on that? I think I, I absolutely have to agree. I think that if you have a patient who is in refractory hypotensive shock, septic shock, and they don't have an arterial line, right, which is 99% of the practices out there, then blood pressure is probably every 30 minutes to an hour, probably appropriate. Um, it is going to take some time for the interventions like fluids, like colloids, like dopamine or whatever to, to take, you know, take shape. So probably a pressure every hour and adjusting the treatment based on that is probably very appropriate. Patients that are febrile, you know, that have a temperature of 103.2 Fahrenheit or something in that range, they're febrile. Okay, great. And let's make sure that we fix that. But I don't think they need temperatures every 25 seconds until it goes back to normal. So we often, I think we often do forget that, especially in 24-hour facilities where probably from the hours of 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., they probably don't need much unless they are that septic patient again. They can sleep and they need to sleep. So I certainly agree. I think, you know, we, we do have a little bit of a battle, which is that these patients can't speak, right? So they couldn't laying in bed and start pressing a button and saying, oh, my, my gallbladder hurts now. And all of a sudden they perfed. But yeah, I think there's a fine line. And that's where I think the technician comes into play because it's not just the patient's status. But as we all know, veterinary medicine, we have to play with the patient's temperament too. If it's a nasty, cranky old cat, they don't want to be TPR'd and everything's fine. Let them be, right? So the technician can be so valuable in that sense. And I'm really for advocating and saying, look, technicians, it's your job. And if unfortunately, you space out the TPRs too far and we miss something, then you screwed up. Some, you know, everybody is accountable. So it's the technician that needs to say, look, I think with the parameters we have in this patient with their condition, we can get vital signs every four to six hours or six to eight hours, that kind of thing, or even, you know, eight to 12 hours. Um, and it's a team approach as opposed to necessarily the veterinarian kind of dictating, well, we always TPLO, uh, you know, check TPLOs every four hours, something like that. I think that you can really look at a balance. And I do agree that we are over, over TPRIs these, these patients. That brings up a great point. I mean, it, it's tough because you're right. In the hypovolemic, shocky, hemorrhagic, you know, patient that has, you know, a hemoabdomen, absolutely, they need to be assessed every 15 minutes or every half hour. And I think the biggest point that I that you brought up is that fractious feline urethral obstruction who is completely stable, who's been unblocked, who now needs pain management, aggressive fluid therapy, monitoring urine output, but probably doesn't need a Doppler and TPR every four to six to eight hours. So I also agree with your team approach, which I think is so important, where for me, I want to maximize the opportunities that we're laying our hands on these patients. So having someone TPR'd at 6 a.m., I come in at 7, I'm you know soaping these animals at 8, they're literally getting re-examined two hours later, which is really important in the critically ill patient, don't get me wrong, but in the stable patient, ideally it'd be nice to time some of that stuff together just to reduce the amount of stress to those pets. 
Absolutely. And I think that this is where the veterinary technician skill set comes into play. Veterinarians are incredible at looking at tons of objective data and saying, okay, here's a, you know, an ACTH stim. So based on all of these things, this patient has Addison's disease and I'm going to do all of this stuff. And sometimes we lose sight of the patient and the nurse or the vet tech is really a very individualized approach. So we will say, as opposed to saying, you know, look at look at even how we've described a patient. Rusty is a 12-year-old male neuter cat with feline urinary obstruction. We would say Rusty is a cranky, old, grumpy, you know, male neutered cat that got blocked yesterday. So we're already tapping into the individual approach to that patient. And so sometimes if, you know, the textbook says the block cat gets vital signs in a Doppler every four hours, we might say, well, this cat isn't the textbook, you know? So I think that's really where the technician skill set, skill set is, is really incredible, and that's where veterinarians should lean on them and say, how often do you think we should check on this patient? How often, you know, would you think it would be appropriate? Staffing levels are an issue, and certainly that, that morning soap. Again, if they're septic, that's a different story. But I've thought about that, too, and I've worked at a couple places where we made it, you know, especially working with interns where they're already needing to do soaps. We made it, you know, protocol where TPRs were done at X time in the morning that coincided with the intern soaps, and then an hour later, grand rounds were done, and then the kind of daily TPRs were done later by the technicians. So the morning soaps were actually done by the interns. And, you know, again, as we used to have it where at 6 a.m. TPRs were done, 7 a.m. interns came in and soaped them and had to do those all over again. And so it became this kind of funny, you know, repetitive thing when the technicians could use it elsewhere. So, yeah, again, I think that uh, this is where the team approach and these nursing plans come into play because we'll make a nursing plan individualized to each of our three, four, five patients, two or three technicians on the floor, maybe four, five, six, seven patients, depending on your patient load, where the veterinarian is looking at 20 or 25 patients and having to very rapidly churn out these objective plans for these guys. I actually think that's a really important reason why doing dual team rounds between veterinarians and veterinary technicians is so important. And it's hard because the shifts are all different. So veterinarians may have a 8A to 6P shift and the tech shift is an 8 a to 8P, but the opportunities where veterinarians can round simultaneously with the technicians, I think is really important because A, it increases the opportunity for learning. B, everyone presents things differently from the veterinarian side versus the technician side. And I think we have so much to learn from that. So great point on that. And I certainly agree. And actually the human hospitals, that's how it's done. Nurses and doctors round together. And um, I certainly believe in that as well. And, and exactly, whether it's not uh, coinciding with maybe the more grand rounds with the interns and residents, but yes, definitely if some of the clinicians that are on the floor, um, you know, with these hospitalized patients can round with the technicians, it's it's great. I'll tell you in my experience that the veterinarians learn from the techs and boy, do the technicians learn from the veterinarians. And then both, both you know, professions see what each of them go through and understand where those things come come into play, right? So the teaching moments are are excellent. Um, and, and on both sides, you know, a lot of times veterinarians will say, we're going to do these things today. And the technicians go, uh, no, we're not. That's not <laughs> going to happen. And vice versa, where the veterinarians say, hey, we did these tests and this is what the results are. And this is where I'm going with my prognosis. And technicians go, oh, that's why we're doing X, Y, and Z. And so there isn't a lack of communication, but there's actually more communication. And that's, I think, very helpful to develop that staff. What do you think is the number one mistake you see in veterinary nursing? I think that technicians are inherently incredible at their jobs. And so I think that they are great at troubleshooting and placing catheters and all those things. The number one mistake I have to say, and it's kind of separate. Well, I guess it kind of goes along with this talk is not uh, is losing sight of continually learning um, and losing sight that we are constant students. So um, if you are, for example, um, using a monitor and you don't understand all of the physiology behind the monitor, so 
pulse ox, blood pressure, entitled C2, all that kind of stuff, not going to get a book and not seeking out, you know, some sort of an opportunity to learn about it. Um, if your doctor brings in a new drug, you know, and says, here, give this to you, you know, give this to your patient, not going to get that package insert and reading through it. Um, that's how, you know, the technicians that I know and love and respect um, have developed their knowledge bases by continuing to learn. That's how I put the talk together, you know, is continuing to learn and read and expand. So I think the, the number one fault is to get into a position, um, you know, where where you don't continue to learn. There's always things to learn, even if you do the same thing every day. You know, if you're a dental technician and your day is completely surrounded by profies and scaling and dentistry and procedure, not to say that, of course, it isn't exciting, but that's, you know, one thing that is somewhat um, routine that you go and read about some new dental thing happening or some new dental disease or some specialist that just came into your area is giving, you know, CE talks. Um, an emergency critical care, same thing. There's always a new, a new catheter out there to look into, a new drug to look into, a new, um, you know, a new, uh, you know, piece of information to grab. So I think in order to make these nursing plans that I'm talking about, right, and to give good critical care nursing, you have to, ex you know, expand your knowledge base too and say, okay, I, you know, I just tend to write down that the catheter is okay every hour, but I'm not really sure what I'm doing. I'm not sure the objective steps to check a catheter. Grab a book, email somebody, you know what I mean? Reach out um, and you will become a better veterinary technician that way. If I could say that there was one thing like we're not great at, you know, at, at uh, jugular sticks, right? But I'm not going to say that because I think all these technicians are really, really awesome at that. I think it's that sometimes we do um, you know, forget we have to learn, and everybody does, right? Not just the people that these amazing people that go to conferences and learn, but everybody, you know, in the veterinary nursing profession, whether you're an assistant to technician, credential technician, VTS, whatever it might be, you have to constantly continue to learn. And I think we sometimes forget that. I think we sometimes come in, we clock in, eight to five, we're done. And, uh, you know, we do forget that our patients require us to continually be up on the most cutting edge stuff. It's because you guys are so exhausted from working so yeah. hard. <laughs> and that's true. And everybody's going to be on the podcast going, yeah, when do I do that? Right. My kids and my 10-hour right. shifts and my whatever. Yes. <laughs> and guys, I totally get that. That's why we've got Girl, right? These 15, 20-minute podcasts to give you, you know, these little snippets of information as opposed to the, the 500-page textbook, which nobody could get through. Well, it's the same thing for veterinarians. I mean, it's so important to, to stay up to date on cutting edge and, you know, just being able to refresh and say, I use sucrophate every day, but what's the mechanism of action of how it actually works and does this patient need it? So, you know, just taking one tidbit that you're going to look up that day when, you know, everyone's exhausted. So um, what we, in all fairness, what do you think is the number one mistake veterinarians make when it comes to either interacting with their veterinary technicians or when it comes to veterinary technician nursing? I think that the, and, and yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I will definitely attach this head on, which is that I think veterinarians tend to micromanage their nursing care. So it's not the role of the technician ever in any situation to diagnose, right, or to prescribe medication. I mean, obviously in an emergency setting, and we all know that when we work in those settings, we often say, hey, the patient's septic, and we're, we're yelling out a diagnosis, but it never goes on a chart that way, but we have put together all this information which tell us that that's probably the correct choice. However, we don't do that. And so there's a there's a circle, right? There's a there's a circle that starts at being a vet and ends at being a vet. But there's also a circle that starts at being a tech and ends at being a tech, and it doesn't involve the veterinarian saying, you're going to tempt this animal every hour, you're going to flip them. I understand that the veterinarian needs to give input on that and certainly could be and certainly could and will be the bottom line. But I think that if not engaging the technician and saying, well, what do you think? How could we best 
treat this patient. Um, I'll give you an example from, I know that happens in general practice, is like x-rays without chemical restraint, right? So you say the dog needs orthopedic x-rays, but you don't really take into account that it's a four-year-old large Great Dane that's kicking and spitting and hissing and you know, biting and running around, and you have two staff members who need to, you know, need to follow OSHA, need to follow all these things. So their approach might very kind of simply be, hey, do you think we could give him something to sedate him? And a lot of times there might be the, nope, nope, that can't happen. Well, that needs to be an engaging conversation. And if the, if the decision is no, it is the veterinarian's to make, but the veterinarian needs to hear out the technician's side and say, well, hey, if we used butorphanol, acepromazine, or if we used dexmedetomidine, you know, here's these options, this is the way to come up with this effective solution. So, you know, if we apply it to emergency care, which is, of course, yours and my background, you know, patients that I always get the kind of legs under, legs over debate, right? Well, how about the technician has a say in how that, how that happens? So I do think that veterinarians tend to micromanage the nursing care of the patients um, and tend to be very kind of one directional with how the patient's going to be taken care of um, in the nursing side. So the medical side, obviously, the drugs you're giving, the amount, the doses, all those kinds of things are or your discretion. But in terms of how often patients are walked or flipped or assessed or all those kinds of things, I think there's actually positive ways to say to yourself, hey, I really think we should assess this guy how, you know, really often because he's really sick. How often do you think we should assess him? And the technician goes, yeah, you're right. Gosh, his blood pressure is never registered, maybe every hour. And then it becomes a, a team as opposed to here's the treatment sheet veterinarian handing to technician and technician goes, okay, we're going to temp it every hour. We're going to check a pulse every, you know, those kinds of things. So I do think that that's probably. Um, the one area that, that veterinarians have to realize they're not technicians. They weren't trained like that. I mean, unless they were technicians at one point, but they weren't <laughs> technicians and they're not trained like that. So they have a role and it's a very important role. But the nurse slash technician, the technician's role is, you know, equal to and a different stream. And that's really why human medicine is a very interesting model. I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, but they have this medical model and the nursing model. And they're actually equivalent, right? There's two separate boards, you know, that oversee that. But there's a whole you know, whole literature published on the nursing approach to patients and the medical approach. And so nurses say, we're not inferior, we're not um, superior, we're lateral, right? We're right on the same, we're trying to do the same thing, which is, of course, affect patient care. The veteran, you know, the technician, I mean, the veterinarian says you need a PCV, the technician figures out the best way to do it, the vein to hit, the size of blood we need, all of those things that are under their purview. So that's what I really think veterinarians really should work on is asking for technician input and um, and including them in part of that process, saying, hey, look, I'm going to tell you what drug to give, but what's the best way to give it? How often could we give it? What would be the best route to administer? Some of those things that's really um, in, into them to do. And then giving the technician autonomy to then take care of that in a responsible, professional manner. That's a great point. I was going to say it's also really important for veterinary technicians to speak up if you notice a physical exam abnormality, because I can't tell you... I've had a couple of weird cases where my nurses have totally saved me. One was a cutorebra puppy that was icteric and was neurologic, and mm. everyone thought it was a portosystemic shunt, and mm. I was worried it was head trauma. There were some periorbital swellings, some hyphema, and three days after the dog's been in the hospital being treated, I had the dog you know, in radiology for uh, radiographs, and the technician goes, oh, I think there's a cutorebra hole and there was a cutorebra oh. hole on the cheek. And we actually oh. thought the cutorebra was migrating, had migrated through the liver, through the oh. central nervous system that resulted on the signs and Whoa. nobody had seen it, you know, so right. kudos to, to um, that veterinary technician for finding that cutorebra 
Absolutely. or just really rare oral lesions or skin masses mm-hmm. or things like that. So, so important to capitalize yep. on that. So absolutely. I'm a huge fan of the technicians putting their hands on the patients and, you know, whether or not they're listening for that, you know, grade three out of six murmur, or they're just looking at the abdomen. I, I'll tell you, you know, petechia are one of the big things that we're good at finding, right? We're in there, we're flipping around. Oh, we flip the ear back. Oh, what are those red spots? Or we're putting the leg back. Oh, what's those spots on the abdomen? So those are all really important. And I also, I'll take it one step further too and say, they need to document those. They need to to write them down on the chart and say, notice small red, you know, non-swelled, you know, swollen area on abdomen and report it to the veterinarian as well. But it's very important that we have nursing notes documented as well, um, you know, which is, again, that other side, right? Veterinarian says, give 30 cc's of AD to this patient. And I say, I gave it by syringe slowly, blah, blah, blah you know, whatever it might be. Um, and all of that information then gets translated into, into best, you know, best practice. But yes, absolutely. Um, huge fan. And we are so observant. We're very good at that. That's a huge part of our profession. Um, and so I think that it's incredibly important, yes, to absolutely the patient, even if they just don't look right and you cannot you know, come up with a scientific way to say it. I'm very good about that saying that too. A lot of times we don't have, we had a couple of weeks, maybe a month of, or two of medical terminology, you know, so sometimes we can't come up with that right language. But if you just say, this isn't right, this is yellow, it's red, it's swollen, it's draining, you know, whatever kind of language you can grab onto and report to the vet. Um, very true. We are with that patient every minute of every hour when you guys are usually there a couple times a day, because you've got a couple hundred other patients to see. So yeah, absolutely agree with you there. And the last point I was just going to bring up was the importance for veterinarians to make sure that we're teaching. And it could be something as simple as saying, hey, this is what gallop sounds like, or this cat has a really soft heart murmur. And taking that time to make sure that you're letting people listen, especially the newer veterinary technicians, the newer veterinarians. It's a great way for everyone to learn. And more importantly, it improves quality of care when your veterinary technicians can pick up on AFib or, you know, VPCs or pulse deficits or a gallop or a heart murmur. And so again, taking that time when you notice an abnormality to to be able to point it out to your whole team to improve our overall quality of care. Great point. And I will even... um kind of meet you there and say that I will give a call to arms for the credentialed or very experienced veterinary technicians as well to train the rest of the team because they may have had um, that mentor, either technician or veterinarian, um, and maybe that that veterinarian is, is you know, tired of teaching or they're not in the clinic much anymore or whatever, but this technician is such a, you know, huge amount of knowledge because of that, they need to pass it on as well. And so if there's an advanced case or there's a tricky, um, you know, procedure or there's a setup or a cleaning of a piece of equipment that needs to be done the right way, whatever it is, is um, the, t- the head or supervising or credentialed or very experienced, you know, whatever that kind of role is in the clinic, the technicians need to teach them as well. But yes, thank you so much for bringing up that. I think we all really do in the veterinary profession have this, this charge and it is to teach because we just don't have um, you know, we, we are getting more access to CE, we're getting more programs on both the veterinary and technician side, but, you know, it's nothing as robust as other professions. So everybody just needs to teach, to teach the person right to the right of them and right to the left of them. And thank you for bringing up the veterinarian should teach us. And I say that then if there's a technician that's got a lot of experience, they need to teach other technicians and assistants as well. And interns sometimes as well. Sometimes we do that too. <laughs> Absolutely. And the last thing I would say, especially as a criticalist, is once in a while, you guys have to let us put catheters in too. Otherwise, we lose our mojo. <laughs> right? 
and I will give you that. What I will say is that you just you have to guarantee us that you're going to give us one leg to play. <laughs> Don't worry, we always <laughs> save you one leg. <laughs> That's so true. We're so good, and we want those procedures. But you're absolutely right. The criticalists have to do it too. I'll tell you, some of the some of the criticalists I, I've worked with have absolutely saved my butt. I've tried twice, blown a leg, and I'm all right. You try, and boom, they get it in. So you guys are you guys rock. <laughs> That's funny. Well, thank you so much. This was so incredible and really helpful. David, can you let us know how people can get in touch with you? Absolutely. And I know that you're going to put up some links too. So first thing is email. Best thing, right, is David Liss, L-I-S is in Sam, S is in Sam, R-V-T, all one word, at gmail.com. You can find me at Facebook uh, under David Liss, R-V-T. Twitter is at David Liss, R-V-T. Um, and I will, uh, there's going to be, by the time this goes up, it'll be davidlissrvt.com. That is in the process right now. Other quick thing is I do have a Facebook group. Um, it is called ER Vet Tech Rounds. And it's a closed group. It's for veterinarians and technicians that are interested in emergency medicine. It's collaborative. We have about 3,000 members international. Um, you will get technicians posting, veterinarians posting. Now, let me make, you know, it's not evidence-based, right? It's Facebook. So it's people's thoughts. Um, and we do close it off. It's not open to industry or owners or any of that. It's a professional group, um, but it's amazing. I've seen it grow over two years. It's a really fun place to share information and criticize and engage and all of that stuff. So um, email again, davidlissrvt at gmail, um, Facebook davidlissrvt, Twitter at davidlissrvt, and uh, davidlissrvt.com. Excellent. And will you say that Facebook page one more time? Sure. ER Vet Tech Rounds. Awesome. Thank you so much. David, this was incredible, and I look forward to doing another podcast with you in the future. Sounds good. Thanks, Justine, for having me, and uh, go vet girl. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. <laughs>